So the passage is 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 5. This is God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is God's word. So the main declaration for us is, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A living hope. What is hope? When you think about hope, how do you define it? How do you explain it to someone? What is the hope in? In the Tagunong shopping center, there's a sign, I'm sure it's around other shopping centers, which is encouraging people who are going through a very difficult time. It's for a great cause, Beyond Blue. But the phrase that they use is a very simple phrase that says, hold on to hope. And it's trying to encourage people. And I have a a real issue with that phrase because I want to know what the hope is in. What are you holding on to? What's the hope? Are you just holding on to an abstract idea of hope? And the problem with it is that's very reflective of our modern understanding of hope, which is more this uncertainty mixed with sort of moderate optimism that's kind of like, well, I hope things will get better. I hope I might get that job. I hope the borders will stay open this year. I hope I'll be able to go on a holiday. And it's sort of riddled with uncertainty. And it's like this wafty idea. Our hope is that maybe things will be okay. Maybe something good will come. But this passage here in the first letter of Peter is talking about a concrete hope. Not a hope that is anything wafty, not a hope that is vague, not this abstract idea of hope, but a concrete reality of this living hope. Something you can grab hold of, which gives you the necessary endurance through all of the terrible and difficult circumstances that you will be faced with in life. Through all of the crushing moments of life, there is a hope that provides an overwhelming level of endurance and stability through those times. This is Peter's announcement. A hope for those following Jesus that gives an unusual perseverance through these crushing moments. And it has nothing to do with our ability and everything to do with the ability of our great God. So the context of this letter is a sense of hopelessness. The context of this letter is Peter writing to, if you have your Bibles, in the first verse, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, the diaspora, the the people who have been scattered. These are displaced people who have been scattered throughout the Roman Empire, a place where, remember, those who are following Jesus at this time make up a negligible percentage 
of the population. And these people following Jesus are told to proclaim Jesus is Lord, which is in direct opposition to the uh, Roman way, the Pax Romana, keeping the peace of Rome, which is to say Caesar is Lord. And if you claim another Lord, then you are threatening the peace of Rome. And the Romans have no problem crucifying anyone that threatens the peace of Rome. We're celebrating the crucifixion. The reality is there were thousands and thousands of people that were crucified. That happened almost every other week. Someone, some revolutionary rises up, someone threatens the Roman Empire, hang them on a cross, humiliate them to show if anyone else threatens the peace of Rome, this is how you will end up. And this is the context for these Christians. So you can feel a sense of hopelessness. And in this context, Peter is saying, praise God, we have a living hope. There is hope. It's alive, it's vibrant, it's transformative. It will never perish, it will never be defiled, it will never fade away. That's the hope that we have and this hope comes about by this new birth which Peter talks about. He has caused us to be born again into the living hope. So how does the new birth come about? Well, the first thing we see is that it is by the mercy of God. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who, according to his great mercy, has done all of this. It's by his mercy that we have all of these wonderful things. So why mercy? Well, mercy obviously comes when we deserve some form of punishment or we need urgent help and we receive undeserved relief or assistance. So it's not something that we are entitled to. Otherwise, it would not be mercy. They would have to come and help us. Mercy is when you you do not deserve it or when someone withholds a punishment that you do deserve. So imagine that you're caught speeding. Imagine that you're doing 30 kilometers and over, 30 kilometers per hour over the speed limit, which is kind of normal for those in Canberra. But imagine you maybe even doing more than that and you get caught. Let's say you actually have a lapse of concentration you're not someone who usually speeds you are a rarity in camera and you stay under the speed limit but you have a lapse in uh, in concentration this day and you're actually going 30 kilometers an hour over the speed limit which is going to produce a hefty fine i think at least several demerit points but let's say the police officer who pulls you over he chooses to pity you he has compassion on you And he waves the ticket. That is his mercy towards you. You deserve the punishment. You should be punished because if we allow everyone to go off breaking the law, then it will turn to anarchy. It'll be a terrible uh, culture. It'll be a terrible environment. We need people who have broken the law to be punishment so people do not break the law. But let's say this police officer actually chooses to withhold that punishment That is his mercy. And in him withholding the punishment, giving his mercy, he also subsequently gifts you something that you do not deserve. That is freedom from the punishment of breaking the law. He withholds the punishment and then in turn you receive something that you don't deserve because you deserve the punishment. That is freedom from that punishment. 
And the reason Peter begins this wonderful statement saying, according to God's mercy, is of course because we don't deserve any of this. We don't deserve a second chance. We don't deserve a living hope, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. We don't deserve it. That's why Peter is saying this. We were created by a loving God, created by a loving God who calls us to walk in obedience because it is the best thing for us. And we, in our sinful nature, choose to reject that. And so this loving God who is perfectly just and holy, which means he must punish sin. He cannot tolerate evil near him. This means that because we have rejected him, because it is evil to break the law of this perfect God, it is evil for us not to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. It is evil for us not to love our neighbor as ourselves, to be so selfish and self-centered. That is evil and against God's plan. And we have all broken it. We have all transgressed. So this leaves us in a place of deserving punishment. It leaves us far worse than that person getting the ticket by the police officer. It leaves us in a place deserving of death and hell, punishment. But this God is rich in mercy. He is rich in mercy, so he withholds the punishment. This is part of the good news. He withholds that punishment. And therefore, subsequently, he gifts us something incredibly wonderful. That is this new birth. That's what Peter says here. By his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Now, there are two questions I want to answer when it comes to this idea of the new birth. And then a third question, which will lead us into this living hope. So the two questions on the new birth. Firstly, why must we be born again? And secondly, how is it possible? Why must we be born again and how is it possible? The results, of course, of our rejection against God, our rejection of Him that we've spoken about is that we are spiritually dead. The penalty of sin, the wages of sin is death. The result of our rejection is death, spiritual death. If God is the author of life, if there is a God who created everything and He is the author of life, then to turn away from Him in our rejection is to be cut off from the source of life, from the source of all good. In God's common grace, we still have physical life. He still gives to all people, uh, all sinners who profess Christ or who don't, He gives physical life, yet we are spiritually dead. We, in our sin, are unable to see the wonders of God. Apart from His grace, we can't see the majesty. We are so, like Augustine said, our hearts are so sinful that they are curved in on ourselves. We just don't look and see the beauty of this God, the splendor of this great King. So we have to be born again. And if this sounds awfully weird, then you're in good company because there's a passage that talks about being born again. One of the religious leaders in Jesus' time, a guy called Nicodemus, is questioning Jesus and saying, you know, in a provocative way, uh, why do we have to be born again? Or like, how does, how's that going to happen? Can someone enter into the womb again? And Jesus answers him very plainly and says, 
you have to be born again, born of water and of the Spirit. You have to be born again spiritually. You have to be born again because you are spiritually dead. This is Jesus basically saying something miraculous has to happen that you cannot bring about yourself. Something extraordinary has to happen. You have to be brought from death to life to enter the kingdom of God. And therefore, this must be by the mercy of God. Something that we can't cultivate within ourselves. It is the mercy of God to make us alive. And this is why it is a gift. This new birth is a gift because we don't deserve it. In fact, we're unable to. A dead person can't do anything. We're unable to do it. It comes purely as a gift. So how does the gift of new birth come along to a dead person? Well, Peter actually answers this in verse 22 and 23, when in verse 23, he says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. How does the new birth happen? How are we born again? Through the living and abiding word of God. God's normative means for this new birth is through the proclamation in various ways of the word of God, of this fact of Christ crucified, of the way of salvation, just as God spoke in the very beginning when there was nothing. There was nothing. It was just chaos. And he said, let there be light. And there was light. He spoke it into existence, just as Jesus, when his one of his closest friends, Lazarus, was dead for many days. And Jesus speaks, Lazarus, come forth. And he comes from the dead and he lives. It is through the word of God spoken that life comes. The message is proclaimed. It could even be happening today. The message is proclaimed that has nothing to do with me, but everything to do with the word of God that we are proclaiming. And all of a sudden something happens. Things start to make sense. Something clicks. There is life. There is a curiosity you never had before. You are awakened to truths that have always existed, yet for the first time you are seeing them in all of their glory and splendor. And apart from the mercy of God in causing this to happen, we remain dead and unable to respond. We are helpless. We don't have hope. And this is why we have to be born again. So how is this possible? The new spiritual birth where we see the wonder of God, where we behold the goodness of Jesus Christ is only possible because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter says here. Caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection doesn't happen. There's no hope. It's all over. So why does the resurrection matter for us to have a living hope? Because the great hope of humanity is to be reunited with their maker, with their creator. The great hope of humanity is to be brought back onto their purpose, our purpose, which is to live in communion with our maker, with this God who created us for the worship of him, because that is the most wonderful thing for us. The great hope of humanity that people suppress 
and distort but can never totally do away with is to be reconciled with their father, with their creator. But sin separates us from this. Sin is the great barrier between humanity and God. And the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Ephesian church, describes this separation from God literally as people without hope and without God. He says the barrier means that you, he's talking to Gentiles, which is you and me, everyone who's not ethnically Jew, anyone who doesn't know God, you're without hope and without God. That's the result of sin. But the resurrection brings back that hope because it means that the penalty for sin has been fully satisfied, which means the barrier is broken. It's broken in the resurrection. If the resurrection does not happen, then we simply know that there is a God who must punish sin and who punished his son. There could still be punishment for us. We don't know that the punishment has been fully exhausted if the resurrection doesn't happen. We just know that there was a man called Jesus who claimed to be God. He was crucified and claimed to take our sin upon himself. But we don't know that God's wrath against sinful people is fully taken in Jesus Christ. Nothing has bridged the gap between sinners deserving of death and a holy God. The barrier remains. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he showed that the great payment for sin is made. He showed that it has been made. It was like the Father saying, yes, I accept of that payment, paid in full. Through the resurrection, because Jesus doesn't stay dead, he returns to the right place at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. See, sin and death was the barrier. That's the barrier between us and God. That's why we don't have hope. But the cross of Christ and the resurrection is where Jesus takes the sin, our sin, upon himself, and then he conquers death as the last great enemy, as the barrier. He breaks death. It's like death had one job to keep people dead, and he failed when Jesus broke death and rose from the dead. And that means the barrier is broken. It's gone for all of those who then turn to Jesus. Sin and death are paid for. That's why in Christ's resurrection, we have hope that we will likewise be fully resurrected and enter into the inheritance that is waiting for us. So just as Jesus was raised from the dead, we now, by trusting in him, are raised to this newness of life. We receive this new birth. Because the resurrection of Jesus opens the door for new life. That is how it's possible. The resurrection shows that God the Father approves of the payment. It is paid in full for all of those who turn to Jesus. Now the third question that leads us into this idea of living hope. What does this new birth give us? The new birth, as I said, obviously gives us new life. We receive new life. We receive... uh, the reorientation back to our entire purpose, which is communion with God. And the way Peter describes this life here is by this phrase, a living hope. The new birth catapults us into this living hope. So what is living hope? As I mentioned earlier, hope in our culture can take on these sort of wafty, vague 
connotations. It's just like, well, I hope that things will get better. I, I, I hope that I will get that job. And what's really being conveyed is, I don't know, maybe it'll happen. That's not this hope. We have a concrete living hope. This, the hope that comes from the new birth in Jesus is an absolute trust that whatever happens in this life, we are firmly and unshakably set on a trajectory toward God's promise for us. The Heidelberg Catechism, written hundreds of years ago, states it like this when it asks the question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And you might phrase it like, what is your only hope in life and in death? And they say, answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yes, all things must work together for my salvation. That's hope to say, no matter what happens, I know one thing will happen. My God will bring me home. I'm set on this trajectory that is unshakable and immovable. I'm set on this trajectory toward my Savior. Not a hair can fall from my head. Everything must work together for my salvation. How liberating is that? When we realize we bring nothing to the table, it's totally to do with the work of Christ. Therefore, when we are in Christ, everything must work together for good. That's why. And this is what Peter says here in verse 4. We are rebirthed into this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's kept there. It's not going anywhere. Who, so we, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We have a concrete hope because we have this assured inheritance. It's assured. That means we're going to receive something. And the thing that we are going to receive is kept in heaven for us. Not only that, but we are kept. We are kept while that thing is kept for us. We are preserved by the God who saves us to then receive that inheritance. So our hope is not in something that may be there for us, like that shady serviceman who says he's going to come between nine and five and you're just waiting there all the time thinking, I hope he comes soon, but you have no idea. There's nothing like that. It's a hope that we have assurance of. We have assurance that God will sustain us all the days of our life until we receive the goal of our life. And the reason we can have absolute assurance on this, and I've mentioned this many times, and I think that uh, one of, uh, if the Apostle Paul had favorite verses, even though there were no verses when he wrote it, but favorite parts of his letters, it would be Romans 8.31. Romans 8.31, which says, God who did not withhold his own son, but freely gave him up for us, how will he not with him freely give us all things? So that's saying, if there was one moment where God could have reneged on his commitment and said, you know what? That's, this is too much. Like I have, I have some love for you. It's like when we say we love people and care for them and I'll do anything 
you know, for, for you. And then that person asks you for something astronomically big and you're like, whoa, 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 it's just a turn of phrase. Like, I'm just trying to say that I'm there for you, but please like keep in mind, I have limits. If there was a point where God could have said, you know what, this is too much. It was surely giving up his own son who did nothing wrong, his perfect son. Surely that point to say, you know what, I, like this is too much, but he didn't. He didn't withhold. That's what Paul's saying. He didn't withhold his own son. So we know he will give us all things necessary for us to continue faithfully walking before him. So hope for the follower of Jesus is concrete assurance that God is for you. And therefore, all things like the catechism says must work together for our salvation. God isn't going to renege anymore. We know he's fully committed. He's fully invested in this. That's what the cross shows us. And this is why our hope is alive, because our future hope is what gives us the endurance through the present. So this is the second question here. That was, what is the living hope? Now, how? Second question, how does a living hope transform our lives? The life of those following Jesus, in spite of what some may think, is not like us sitting at a bus stop waiting for the bus to heaven. To eventually come and we can have a little bit of fun dip our toes in a little bit of christian things but really we're just waiting for the bus to come and take us to heaven that's totally not what following jesus is about this living hope transforms how we live right now the hope in the resurrection completely transforms the present in verse 13 of peter's letter here he says Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he says, we have this living hope through the resurrection. Now set that hope fully upon what awaits you, upon the grace, the, the, another gift to be brought to you at Christ's second coming. We look to the future. And this transforms the way we live now because we realize that this life is preparation for that destiny. It's preparation for our whole purpose. A heavenly hope that is future oriented and rooted in the past work of Jesus Christ transforms the present. A, a future oriented heavenly hope that is rooted in a past reality transforms the present it's like if you had a relative that you dearly loved let's say like an aunt figure or if you didn't have any good aunts and uncle there's surely someone on your family that you actually think you know i really just i have endearing thoughts when i think of that person a really loving relative and they live far away and you know that they would want you to live a certain way and not in a nagging way, but because they care for you. But because they live like over the other side of the country, you're free to, to kind of live the way you want and you can still talk to them on the phone whenever they call and give the impression that you're living an upright life. But then imagine that that loving relative says, hey, I'm coming to live in your city. I'm going to live with you. I'm so excited. And you have this initial sense of shock, perhaps shame, but then you realize, oh, my aunt's coming. I've got to clean my house. I've got to get my life together. I've got to kind of live in this way. And, not, and actually, 
if it is done out of a genuine love, it's not in order to earn her love, it's because it's already there. You're feeling her love toward you, her goodwill toward you, and therefore it transforms how you are living. You start changing your life now, preparing for that person's arrival. A future hope rooted in what you know about that aunt from past reality transforms the present. So when we set our hope fully on the grace to be brought to us at Christ's coming, we've seen his love. We've seen the extent of his love. And when we see the reality that he is coming again, it transforms how we live now. When you hope in eternity, you're all of a sudden set free from this world. You're set free from the unbearable pressure of constantly molding this life to fit this unrealistic picture-perfect lifestyle that you see in a social media age. It's like, imagine you're going on a holiday. If any of you ever watched the National Lampoon's family vacation, Clark Griswold, and, and he goes on this holiday with his family, and he has this idea to make it fantastic, and he wants his family to bond together so they decide to travel all across the country but there's just this pressure from him that he wants to make this holiday great because the family feels like they're starting to fall apart. And so he wants to do all these great things. And there's just so much pressure and the kids aren't enjoying it. Uh, the, the wife's not really into it. She wanted to fly over. He wants to drive, you know, weeks over the other side of America. And you can just sense this pressure in him that's influencing people to make this holiday great. And it falls apart. And that's the reality of people who only have their hope in this life. You only get one shot at it, so you better make it great. Or you just accept the apathetic culture and you say, eh, maybe things will work out. There's, there's neither really a good option if you have your hope only set on this world. But imagine you're on a holiday and you actually know there's far better things than this holiday. It actually frees you to enjoy every little thing about this holiday. So if something goes wrong, you're not crushed because of it. You're crushed when you have all of your expectations and everything set upon how great this holiday is going to be. And then when one little thing goes wrong, everything falls apart. Likewise, in this life, if your hope is only set on this life, it's crushing. But when your hope is set upon eternity, upon the reality of Christ coming back and piercing the sky and every single eye beholding him, and you realize that is your destiny. You can enjoy every little bit about this life. It actually frees you to enjoy this life because it's not the ultimate. It's merely a foretaste of the full banquet that we are waiting for. It's an appetizer. Let me finish by just giving one example of this transformation, and particularly when dealing with shame and disappointment. And the example uh, we can look to is by none other than the, the author of this letter, by Peter. Most of you would know Peter. Peter is a turbulent personality. Out of all of the followers of Jesus, he is uh, a gruff guy. You kind of get this picture. He's a fisherman. A lot of them were fishermen. He's a tradesman, but he uh, is very turbulent. One moment, 
He is straight A student praising the Messiah, direct revelation from God saying, Jesus, I know who you are. You know, he, he's sitting like the best student in the class, getting the, the best the, and the answer right. And then, of course, the next moment, Jesus is calling, referring to him as Satan because he got things terribly wrong. Peter as well, you would know. One moment he is saying, Jesus, I'm going to die for you. I will die for you. And then the next moment, he can't even admit that he knows Jesus in front of a little slave girl. And he denies his Messiah. He denies this man who had brought him in, who he had spent probably almost every single day of his life for the last three years with. And he denies him. And we read that when Peter denied Jesus the third time, when he remembered that he he wept bitterly. This isn't just crying This is crushing despair. This is a grown man having almost losing every ounce of shame in one sense because he's just going to bawl his eyes out in front of everyone. He has denied his Messiah. That's it. As far as he's concerned, his life is over. He is weeping bitterly. It's utter shame and disappointment. He has denied his Lord and the one who actually washed his feet And this was before Christ died. Imagine how Peter felt when he heard that Jesus was dead. He already had the shame. He had denied his Lord. And then imagine that moment when when Peter realized that Jesus was dead. That's it. It's the moment where there's almost no more bitter weeping because you're so numb. You're so emotionless. You're so hopeless now. You can't even muster up the tears anymore. That's probably where Peter was. Imagine a situation like that for yourself. Imagine your mother or father, someone very close, your closest friend, and you have a chance to stand up for them in a moment. It's a life or death moment. And you choose to ignore them for whatever reason, perhaps self-preservation. You don't want to get associated with them. And then they die and that's it. And you have no chance at reconciliation. And that's your last memory. Think of the shame that comes from that. Peter's hope died with Christ on the cross. He was hopeless. But then came the resurrection. He's not here. He is risen. Imagine the relief for Peter. Imagine the relief. You mean he's alive? I mean, there's a second chance. My Messiah is alive. Peter's hope was completely resurrected with the sight of the resurrected Christ. So you read these words, read these words again with that context, knowing how Peter would have felt. And then years later, he gets to write this letter. And so he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope. There is hope. How wonderful. Cowardly Peter, who could not confess Christ before a little slave girl, all of a sudden can preach before hundreds and hundreds of men and preach boldly, preach a ripper of a sermon. And he can stand before the Jewish leaders of the day who had the power to cast him away into prison and he can say before them, hey, you guys do whatever you have to do, but I'm going to keep confessing Christ. I can't help but speak of all I've seen and heard. 
How does that happen? How does that happen? That's the hope of the resurrection. That's the transformation of the resurrection. This kind of living hope transforms our present completely. It is alive. It covers shame and disappointment. It provides a peculiar peace that is able to rid itself of the burdens of this age because we live for another. It is a hope that rests completely on the finished work of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It is a living hope. It's not an abstract idea of hope. It's a concrete hope that is in what we have seen in the work of Christ, a hope that assures us that He will finish what He has begun. And so that's why we gather.